Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In podcasts, where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. Today's podcast, we'll be talking to Sophia Murphy. Sophia is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. In July 2018, her father, a 61-year-old former member of the Irish Defence Forces, was sentenced to 18 years in prison. John Murphy pled guilty to the sexual assault and rape of his eldest daughter, Sophia, from the ages 3 to 15. Sophia waived her anonymity in order to name her abuser and to help others who might be too afraid to come forward and report their abusers. She appeared on The Late Late Show with Ryan Tuberty in September 2019, where she bravely shared her story and urged victims to come forward. In October 2019, Sophia took part in Finna, a TG4 documentary, bravely sharing her story of being sexually abused by her father throughout her childhood and how she survived. Would you kick us off by just giving us your story and you can, you're free to say, as little or as much as you're comfortable with. My father abused me. My first memory was when I was three, roughly around three. Um, but I received my file from the HSE a few years ago when the court case was going on and I found out it was going on since I was like a year and a half. It was hard, to be honest, to tell on my dad because as I said, he's my dad, I loved him. And that was, I was afraid of losing them because I also depended on them for love as well as a lot of other things. Sometimes I felt like I was the adult. He suffered with an illness and he was sick. I always kind of felt sorry for him. And then when I was 14, I got the courage to go to social workers and tell them what was happening at home. And they were taking me out of the family home because I was making accusations. And then they were threatening me by taking my sisters out of the family home. Then I retracted the statement um life went back to normal but he still abused me even after going to the social workers i was drinking and taking drugs and not caring what i'd say to people and i started kind of telling people what was going on in the family home so my family moved to foxford in mayo because they didn't want people kind of finding out and everything was then forgotten about until five years ago my father abused another child he denied doing it so that's when I said no he's not going to do to her what he done to me me and my sister were talking and she opened up and told me that he also abused her so we went to the social workers and we told the social workers what had happened and stuff like that and do you know the, the horrible thing was like is that they were asking us about our kids being safe and then I was thinking like we've known this for 33 years we're looking after our kids why didn't you look after it it kind of put us off as if to say like are are we doing the right thing are we going to cause trouble are we going to cause trouble for our kids you know because they went investigating into the schools to see if our kids were doing okay and stuff like that and 
Is your sister was, older or younger? Um, she's younger. My sister that I'm talking about, she was adopted when I was three. And she was allowed to be adopted after there was reports put into the HSE. So that HSE file of him abusing me was already there. And they still got to adopt her. So there's one part of my file that really, really, really got to me is when I was a year and a half, he admitted to putting his fingers inside me and it said, noted, Mr. Murphy has big hands, advised not to do it again. Oh my and I was, God. I know, I know. Oh and, th- it, and when I seen that, I was like, it's like, who do you trust? These people were supposed to protect us and they didn't. When it came then to doing statements and stuff like that with the guards, it was like, it's pulling at you from all angles because I depended on these people when I was 14 and 15, but yet I was still sleeping on the streets. So I wouldn't have to go home. Anyways, when me and my sister went to the social workers, the guards were contacted and Thomasina, the guard that dealt with the case, came out and to my house and she spoke to us. And then the following day, my younger sister, Michaela, told us he'd done it to her as well. To hear that he'd done it to my sister was actually worse than Anthony ever put me through because I knew what it felt like and I hated to think that they felt that way. But then there's a part of my documentary where they bring me to the back of my house where I lived in in Galway. And this is the part where my guilt lifted. It's because I stood there in between these two big walls. And as an adult, I could see over them walls. But as a child, I couldn't even reach the top. And that's when I knew no matter how hard I tried or what I'd done, there's nothing I could have done to stop it. Doing the documentary, I think it was one of the best things I've ever done. Because I I got to go back and revisit all those places and I could walk away from them. I wasn't trapped. I stood outside my house, I stood outside my school, I stood outside my grandparents' house. But I, I had the choice. The, to have that is powerful. To be able to say it out loud and to get it out from the pit of your stomach is, there's nothing that can explain it. Because like, as you know yourselves, when you hold all that down, it's bitter, it's, it's horrible. Like it's self-harming, overdoses, running away from home, thinking everybody hates you, paranoia. Just so much comes with it. I'm not saying that, after the court case, everything was easy. It wasn't. It was great for a few days. And then it's like, what do I do now? What, what have I got to worry about? What next? And then I kind of got angry then because I was thinking, he's in there safe. And we're out here dealing with all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. How much and then, time did he get so <clears throat> 18 years. It's shocking to think that when you finally get the courage to come forward. Well, not finally. I mean, you definitely try it all along. But yeah. to come forward and then they investigate you. Yeah. My God, pretending they're going to do a good job. Yeah. Absolutely disgraceful. How did you even know where to go when you decided to report it when you were young? Yeah, I said it to a neighbour at the time. And the neighbour I said it to, she said to me, I was the one that reported your father when you were a year and a half old. Ah, Jesus. Jeez. I was wondering how they'd find that out. She said that to me and she told me where to go and... Obviously, at the time, I didn't know about the file. And then my parents were saying, you know, she was making accusations. And of course, I believed them. But then when I got the file, that's when I thought everything was going around in my head. And it was like, if I was just stubborn enough for 14 and 15. But then when I look back and think about it, there's nothing, no matter how stubborn I was or how hard I wanted to push it, I couldn't have because I wasn't allowed. It's also realising when you were 14 or 15, it's not like 14 and 15 today. And when you're an abused child with trauma, you're not actually 14 or 15 mentally. No. 
Well, you've actually been conditioned. Your behaviour now is kind of set in stone because your abuser has ensured your behaviour accommodates yeah. the abuse. There just wasn't a question of choice. I don't know what it would Even myself, I remember the time I said no. I was just so upset I wasn't thinking. And I just said yeah. no. And it was a response that I wouldn't have done given a bit of time and thought. I just blurted it out. And so it was a, nearly an accident that happened. So for yeah. to expect a victim who has gone from age three to 15 to at any point say no, most people can't understand it unless you've been through it. But yeah. we certainly perfectly understand it. Yeah. You were yeah. saying also, Sophie, that when you were doing the documentary, you realised that you couldn't have stopped it, that you were actually innocent. Had you yeah. much therapy under your belt before you got that realisation? My counsellor, I can honestly say I'm absolutely blessed because I've done counselling over the years, but it never benefited me because I could never admit or say what was in the back of my mind. But when I started going to my counsellor, she understood me. She, she opened me up. She turned me inside out. Like I left some of my counselling sessions and... I would be soaked from head to toe in sweat. I'd be wrecked tired. I, I'd be sitting in the, in the chair and I'd be going back to my childhood and my shins would be freezing. I could feel it. Yeah. And it's when she brought me back to that, like she said to me, she goes, your, your mind might remember everything, but your body will. And it's when she broke me down like that, that's when I started realizing that it wasn't me. I'm not this person. I don't feel this way because it's who I am. I yeah. feel this way is because of what was done to me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's horrible that a person that's supposed to love you and care for you can leave you feeling that way, vulnerable, totally paranoid, totally not able to trust anyone, yeah. not care about yourself, and love them more than anything in the world. I know it's crazy. How many siblings have you got? I have two sisters. And the three of you at the present, how is the relationship between the three of you? It's brilliant. As three sisters, we still have not sat down and spoke about our abuse. Do you think you ever will? Yeah, we will. How are your other two sisters? Are they also in therapy? My younger sister, Michaela, she was in therapy for a while and then she went off to college and stuff and she formed epilepsy at 14. So she had a lot of stuff going on and there's a 13 year age gap between me and Michaela. So I, I'd moved away to England at 16. So I was gone from when she was three. And then I came back when she was like five or six. She's doing good. But my, my sister, Steph, she got really, really sick last September. And she was in intensive care for a while. And the night my documentary came out, is she was actually in intensive care. And I was lying in the bed beside her and we were watching it on the telly. And she was snuggled in on my shoulder. And um, she just was watching it and she goes, the house of horrors. And when she said that, that got to me because I knew she, we both felt the same pain. And it's like, oh my God, she understands completely. She didn't have to say anything else, but I knew what she meant. Yeah. I knew she felt the same. And you will find it's easier to feel for the other person. Yeah. And that's the bit that's heartbreaking because it's that knowledge of you actually know what she's feeling. It's like I, I got your book after my court case and I think it was Paula's communion. I got as far as that. And I remember I came home and I went out to the utility room and I flittered everything because my whole body, I could feel every single bit of it. But yet when I spoke about my own, I couldn't feel any of it at the time. The importance of talking now because you're going to inspire yeah. so many other people who can't feel for themselves, but they can access the feelings they have for you, for somebody else. Isn't that June when everything has happened so 
a lot is happening for her at the moment. A lot was happening at the time that not being able to feel for yourself can still be a protection unless you drop that. It's not going to serve you. It probably did save you when you were going through it. But as an adult, it doesn't save you at all. It keeps you away from yourself. Yeah. But it doesn't matter once you know that because that doesn't happen overnight. That, no. That, no, it's slowly matured. And, and so I can relate to that. I could relate to being able to tell the story, to recall in detail what had happened, but have absolutely no emotional attachment to that. And it took me a long time to understand that and to actually understand the need for me to connect with it and that there was yeah. a benefit in it. I remember at the time writing it thinking, why in God's name would I ever want to feel it? Exactly. Yeah. There is actually great freedom in it, but that's hard. That's a hard thing to swallow when you're on the end thinking, I'm not going there. Yeah, it's all, it's all just part of the process. Like even with your sisters, they're all going to reach a stage when they're ready in their yeah. own time but looking at you will definitely give them great hope and comfort <laughs> it will like and you encourage them to to want to feel the same way and that not feeling is absolutely a protection but i think given that on the flip side of it you have done in-depth work you have as you said yeah. been turned inside out it's okay if there's certain times and certain areas where you can't feel it because that's that's a process and you may never access all of the feelings you ever had. And there's no need to, I don't think. I think once you access it once, really access it, really get it, I don't think you need to keep going back. Once you hit the point where you realise that you don't feel the way you feel because of you, it's because of someone else. Yeah. yeah. Once you reach that point, and then after that, I think you can deal with it a bit easier. Absolutely. What was your relationship with your sisters like when you were kids, when the abuse was happening for you? Myself and my sister Steph, there's four years between us. We were very close. But of course, there was times I'd get jealous of her and stuff like that. Me and Steph used to sleep together a lot. And as I kind of got older, we were extremely close. Like she was always mouth. She'd stand up for herself to a certain degree, whereas I wouldn't. She'd be gobby like, whereas yeah. I wouldn't have been. Yeah. So Steph you'd be standing behind her, right behind her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kind of sounds yeah. a lot of similarities there between <laughs> you and us. Yeah. And it's understandable the sibling rivalry that would go in any home yeah. is only emphasised more when there's trauma and fear behind somebody's behaviour. When there's trauma going on in the house and everybody is, is hiding their own pain, it's how they behave out of that that really yeah. makes a relationship yeah. very difficult. A lot of people would self-harm as a result of the abuse when they don't understand what's going on and they hate themselves. Yeah. We haven't chosen that path in terms of physically hurting ourselves but i believe that you broke your wrist that's one of the most extreme apart from suicide attempts like physically hurting yourself a lot of people would cut themselves breaking your wrist i don't think i've heard that one before and that's something you experienced isn't it yeah i did i broke my wrist a couple of times i tore ligaments in my leg it's even when the guards got my medical the doctor in the hospital actually wrote on one of the things that there was an unusual tear or something in my leg and the story I was telling them didn't match up to the damage that was done, but still nothing was ever. Yeah. I sprained my ankle many times. You know, I just jump off things and land on my ankle. Just weird stuff. Like I was even saying to my counsellor one day, I was that naive when I was younger, even after getting my x-ray, I'd go into the toilet in the hospital and be banging off the tiles and stuff, not knowing that that wasn't going to make any difference. I wanted them to see that I was hurting. How do you tell them? Did you know that at the time? 
like I know you can look back and and say well that's what I was doing it was a cry for help but at the time what were your can you recall what were your feelings and thoughts on it I was looking for attention and was that clear to you as you did it yeah was it like a cry for help somebody help me here were you looking for attention outside the home or inside the home I think it was inside the home. I, I, I think if he thought that I was hurt and sore, he wouldn't touch me. I used to try that one, didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work for me either. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. It's like I thought if he seen me as being something fragile, that it's you know, like when you watch telly and you see a child sick, their parents cuddle them and nurture yeah. them. And yeah, because you convince yourself he couldn't know that hurts me this much. He couldn't realize what he's doing. There must be a big mistake here. I mean, the, yeah. you're desperately trying to understand it and crying out for love and yeah. affection from your main caregivers. Isn't it amazing that we all have that same image that, you know, if you were sick, people would mind you? Yeah. Considering it wasn't something we ever experienced. Where did we get that notion? The Brady Bunch. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was because, yeah. House in the prairie and the yeah. Waltons, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you were saying your father was ill. What was his illness? He had a disease called Wilson's disease. It's There's too much copper in the blood and it attacks the liver. So he had a liver transplant about 10, 12 years ago. And was and he a drinker? No. Was he religious? Yeah, in a weird way. Like I used to yeah. hear him in bed at night begging God for forgiveness and begging him for help. And I used to think... He was begging him to make him better from his disease. And he even used to bring us to faith healers and bring us to prayer meetings and stuff like that. And the longer I spent with my counsellor, the more this stuff, you know, it was just... Fucking ringing a bell, girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is one thing we all found, any abuser. That seems to be the one thing they all have in common, that they're religious in some form or fashion. Yeah. That seems to be where they channel their fear and their anxiety, thinking the only one that can punish them or forgive them is a higher power. Not yeah. the people they're actually raping, but the higher power is going to help them. And I think that's where they channel it all, because there has to be a way for them to do what we do, to disassociate and, and not pay attention to the reality. There's nobody else that they could really talk to about it yeah. either, yeah. is there, without getting yeah. into trouble. But it is something about religion. Like when we were growing up, religion was very fearful. Like they would have had a more fearful experience of religion than we did. Yeah. And we were scared. You'd wonder because they all had the capacity to read the Bible in a way that suited them and told them what they wanted to hear. Because I know my father's biggest fear was something in the Bible that told him if he ever harmed a child, he was doomed and there was no coming back. And I know that even came up in court. Yeah. Is your dad still in prison? Yeah. Is he old? He's 63. Do you know what day my dad's birthday is? Well, same, day, same day as mine. I don't believe you. Yeah, That's but no, he's, he's 63 this year, I think. He was 61 the year he got sentenced, so he'd be 63, just gone, yeah. Um, I went to visit him last November, not, not November gone, year. November before that, because my sister, Steph, got sick that, that year as well. She got um, William Barry syndrome, and she was told that she'd be in a wheelchair. And I went up to the prison because I was just so, so angry at him, and I told him the damage he'd done. When I went to see him in the prison, when I was leaving, he put his hands out to give me a hug. And I remember he just put his hand on my shoulder and there was part of me that just wanted to grab him. And I said, if I hug him, I'm not going to want to let go. And I knew he could feel that off me and that kind of agitated me. And it's only in the last couple of months I realised that is because I feel like he thought that he was in control by me going in there and me walking away crying, if that makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever considered doing restorative justice with him? 
what does yeah. that mean? It's a process whereby you would sit face to face and get the opportunity to ask and question. Now, the fact that you've already been in with them and that there is that uh, open communication would probably make that an ideal situation because it'd be supervised and it would be controlled. You might not feel the need. I'm just curious, did you ever feel the need to do or would you feel the need to do that? I often think that, what was I to and why did he do it? Why this, why that, why the other? But I don't think that he realises that himself yet. Right. Because I don't think my dad is sorry for what he done. Yeah. I think he's just sorry for the damage he's caused. We were just interviewing a woman, Dr. Marie Keane, who works in the field of restorative justice and helps organise and put people together. And before they would meet up, she would meet with you as many times as is needed to find out what exactly you would like to know, what you expect to get and how you would feel if you didn't get it. And she would go and do the similar with him. So before she would even organise the meeting to come together, she'd have a fair idea if both of you are going to get your needs met. Yeah, for sure. As Sophie's just said, she doesn't even feel he's there yet. No, I know. But you see, if the questions were put to him in a prearranged meeting, but she would meet with him and by... Putting the questions to him, Joyce, is what I'm thinking. She would start the ball rolling in terms of him having to think about that because he knows he's going to be having to answer it in a meeting with Sophia. Yeah. I'm just yeah. curious. I mean, would it even be something that would benefit you or you'd want to do? I can honestly say I've asked, my, I've asked myself that question a million gazillion times. Why? I actually think it would do you quite good now at this stage you're strong enough and you've been through enough I think in our case we wouldn't have ever got the opportunity to do that if you can get the benefit of something like that why not do it if it's available to you yeah I personally would think it's too early because he's only gone two years and you're still doing our own work he's Um, five years inside now though was he yeah because he got five years it was five years for the first case so he was serving time when our court cases came up but he's only in Arbor Hill, I think, three years. And is he in was, a programme? I'm not sure. When you reported the abuse and they start querying if your children were okay and then investigate, went to the schools and all that, are we talking about Tussler? Yeah. Because I'm also thinking, like, apart from the investigation, oh. allowing uh, the adoption of, of your sister to go forward when they've had a reported, what a disgrace now. They allowed the adoption of your sister to go ahead after it was reported that he had been abusing you. Yeah. And now they're querying if you're, what are you doing to protect your children? It makes me so mad. You know, it's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Their, their thoughts have been putting down on a report that he was advised because of yeah. the size of his hands. Yeah, his fingers yeah. were very they big. They into his child. Yeah, those fingers are huge. Yeah. Don't do that again. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> For fuck's sake. It's shocking now. It's just shocking. It is. When when I seen that, honest to God, I got sick in my mouth. I did. Yes. It was like, oh my God. That incident you said happened when you were one and a half. Yeah. But you said something about you were going to them when you, you thought it was three. So what happened at three that you had a memory? That's when I had my first memory on right. the bus. And when it came to court, they said that that's all they could. They could only go back as far as that because they could only go by what I remembered. They couldn't go by the file or anything. They could only take my statements from what I told them. Even that is disgraceful. Just because you can't remember it. He gets away. Yeah. It's the best sentence I've heard of in Ireland. I remember when he, the judge said, this man deserves nothing less than life sentence. And I remember looking around at Thomasina, the guard, and I was like, oh my God, he doesn't fucking deserve that. That's when, that's when I realised how bad it actually was. Yeah. yeah. 
he got me again then because it's like they're taking my dad away and he's holding out his hand and looking at me roaring crying and I'm sitting there feeling sorry for him yeah you yeah. know it's she like the same so talk us about your experience of actually going and making a statement for other people I think it'd be very interesting for them to hear because ours was so long ago yours is a lot yeah. more recent so what what was it like for the whole start of the process for you going in making your statement and then what happened before you got to court my statements took over two weeks some days I was in there 10 hours some 12 hours it was really 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 hard and at the time I hadn't done enough of counseling to feel the abuse yeah. so it's like when I was giving my statements I'd be saying, oh, he would touch you in the boob or he would touch you in the ass or he would do... When I'd be saying you, I was meaning I, you touch yeah. me. And now to be able to say that it was me, it's like that in itself is powerful. Yeah. But in the statements, it's like I was in there reading a story about somebody else. Yeah. But I was going to counselling at the time, but I wasn't at it long enough. But I'm so lucky the guard that I dealt with, she was amazing. She was absolutely fantastic. And then after that, when you give your statement you're like oh brilliant that's it now everything is over a court is going to be next week and this that and the other but <laughs> no obviously it doesn't work that way as you know yeah i think in between the statements and in between court that's where i was being pulled back and forth because before he got jail for the other case he tried to attempt suicide he tried to set himself on fire he tried to cut his penis off he tried to do but that was all to get us to feel sorry for him Right. And then he had contact with one of his family members and he was telling them that he was being harassed in prison. But he knew that that would upset us. Yeah. You know, so he was pulling at us from one angle. And even even though he was in prison, he still had control over us without us even realizing it. And it was my counselor that made me see it that way. And I'm not going to lie, I did have a mental breakdown after I'd done my statements. And Looking at it now, I'm not surprised. Because you know yourselves, when you hold all that stuff down the pit of your stomach and you let it out, it's like part of you is being taken away because you've given up what you are, what you were, who you are, what you kept secret, what protected you, what made you feel safe. You've yeah. given it all up and you're, you're suddenly empty. The way I look at it is I wouldn't have been able to get happy in my life unless I had that empty feeling. Yeah, you had to get rid of all that shit. Yeah. To, get to, to get to who you really are. Absolutely. Yeah. You're on a, an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Everything you do, the made, like making the statements, your your anxiety levels are so high. And when that's all over, you're bound to come down. And the court cases, every time you have to appear, that's another emotional heightened you know, stay because you're filled with all these feelings that you don't understand. And then even feeling sorry for him. When that's all over with, you're crashing again because you're just a mess you don't understand yeah, yeah and that's why it is so helpful to have a lot of counseling behind you but very few people do have at that stage when i was younger i it'd be all about counselors and they're like oh you can't trust it. it's the bad people that brainwash the good people into thinking that way yeah because, as i say i'm so lucky i found the best counselor i could ever have imagined Do you know yeah. she was like a guardian angel and i know like a pair of shoes not every shoe is going to suit you i had to try a few before i found the one i needed for anyone that finds it hard to open up to someone doesn't mean you're not going to open up to the next person you said 
you had several councillors, but you never really opened up except to this one who was a little gem. And we also promote the need to get the right person and not be afraid to walk away from somebody if you're just not connecting with them. How yeah. did you walk away from the other ones that you didn't feel worked with you? I just stopped going. Right. My counsellor that I go to now, I used to ring her the odd day or send her a text and like, I can't come, something come up, something come up. And one day I went in and she goes, look, I'm sick of your excuses. She goes, I know you're lying. She goes, you either want this or you don't. Yeah. And then I thought, oh shit, I like so this we, woman. I, yeah. I think what you're going to help an awful lot of other victims with, more than anything you've said today, more than any of your experiences, is the feeling you held for your father. Because... I believe, especially when it's familiar, it doesn't have to be a father, it could be a cousin, an uncle, somebody in your family. When somebody in your family abuses you, that being torn between loving the person and hating the person at the same time is really confusing. And people outside don't understand how you could ever feel like that. But victims understand how you can feel like that. They're your world. In our case, even with our father, and I could honestly swear in a stack of Bibles, I hated the bones of him. But he was all yeah. we had. Yeah. And then you're groomed so well into a mindset. I remember June going through a stage where she felt sorry. She was afraid my father was going to be beaten up in jail. But I think that's very normal. Yeah. But as a victim, people outside of that kind of tell you that you shouldn't be feeling like that. And they don't give you the yeah. space to go, actually, I feel like that and I'll get over it. It's not even yeah. that they tell you. It's that they make you feel that you shouldn't be feeling it. And, um, and how could you? that doesn't make sense so you must be telling lies because if somebody did that to you why would you still love them that just doesn't make sense so something is something is wrong here i don't understand this so somebody must be lying and i understand because it sounds like a complete contradiction even when i listen to sophia talking about giving her statement that's triggering in me memories of when we gave ours because being told to use the specific words like penis and vagina. But it's I like the child and you're sitting in that chair and you're like, I can't say yeah. that word. Yeah. It's not like an adult. It's like, oh, I'm sitting here as a five-year-old girl because you're talking about yourself as being a five-year-old. And like yeah. the guards, Thomasina, we used to call it for JJ and penis. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But I could see what you were doing was something similar to what we were doing in a different way with the way you were saying he would touch your bottom or he would touch your boob or whatever that was you trying to remove yourself from the story yeah. and we discovered yeah. when we were writing the book that's the way we started off writing we would say he would come yeah. in and tell you to do this or he would do and so it had yeah. nothing to do with you at all you were trying not to feel yeah when you're given a statement they can't allow that they have to have you say yeah he touched my vagina and that was very intense and for the first time yeah. to have to word it like that, especially when you're not even sure if it was abuse and what role did you play in it, that's absolutely traumatic. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear yeah. that it took a couple of weeks with you. It's just amazing listening to you. We're, I'm hearing a lot of our story in what you're saying. And especially the fact now you have two sisters, there's three yeah. of you. That's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. also the, the dynamics of the trio is, is very similar. When what was the sentence for, Sophia? But the first sentence was 10 with, with five suspended. And then right. he got 10 for my sister. what was that actually for? It was for another victim. Yeah. Right. And for my sisters, he got 10 years and he was told he'd have to serve every single day of the 10 years. And then when it came to my case, the judge said life sentence. And as the judge said, he goes, I believe if this man was let out, he'd do it again. Without a doubt. No. Was your sister's case separate to yours? 
Yeah. Theirs was in the circuit court and mine was in the high court. Why was that? Because theirs wasn't rape. Full it penetrative. Was, yeah, yeah. They do work, yeah. Sophia. Come on. You can penetrate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Oh, <laughs> oh, dear God. So their case was separate because of that. Yeah. So yours yours was considered more serious. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, does it? No. I no. know their case. I've never heard of that before now. No. Yeah, theirs was heard in February and mine was heard in, in Castlebar Court and then mine was heard the following September in Dublin. And tell me, what was that condition that your sister developed? And do you believe that it was as a result of the abuse? The first time she got sick was the Guillain Barry syndrome. It's just where her immune system just failed on her. It's just right. worn out. Right. Steph is the opposite now. It's like she's the one that holds everything in. Well, you just keep doing what you're doing because. Oh, I will. I yeah. will. She's a whole lot better now. She is. She's amazing. Like she's. She'll talk about it more. Right. You also mentioned drinking and drugs and sleeping rough. Can you talk yeah. a little about that? I'd say I started drinking when I was nine or ten, just dibbling in it, obviously. And then I started working when I was 12 and I was getting my own wages. Right. So I'd have my bottles of book fast at the weekend and then I'd buy hash and I wouldn't go home then. He'd be up to let me in. It'd be an argument with him and then he'd come upstairs then and he'd, it, do you know what I mean? It was just like a vicious circle. And yeah. I used to get so angry with drink. Like, I remember times I'd stand at the canals in Galway and I'd be like, will I, won't I? And I don't know. I've come so close so many times. I don't know what saved me. Yeah. Overdoses, everything. But yet I'm still here. Yeah. I lo- I just think back to the little girl in me and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you are one strong kid. Fair play. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be sleeping rough. It was tough. It was. But I'd go home then in the mornings and... Michaela was a baby at the time and I just used to get such comfort knowing if she wasn't at home I don't think it would have been as easy to go home to right you know it's like like she came along when I was 13 I think to myself did she come along to save me it was her I tried to protect she kind of kept me going back to the house and is she anything like you were (laughs) no thank god your question Sophie when you were going through therapy when you were going through and dealing with your stuff did you find it easier to deal with your with your stuff your your abuse as a child and more difficult as you were a teenager yeah because the child is is you can kind of say okay they were innocent but the teenager is more difficult isn't it yeah a lot more a lot more it's because I think I did, like it's like my counsellor said to me before, can you define yourself between an adult and a child? I'm like, no. When you're a teenager, you think you are an adult. Yeah, and you think you are. When you're an adult, you think <laughs> you're a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's it. Yeah. And that's why, like, m- most victims of childhood sexual abuse, whatever their external circumstances, psychologically, the impacts are nearly identical. We can all relate so much to each other's uh, impacts, the way, it, you know, psychologically it changed you. It really is incredible to think that all of this understanding that's gone on unsaid, unknown, unwritten. It's more about, Sophie, when you come out and you tell your story and you tell it with all the detail. And unfortunately, yeah. that's what has to happen for other people to go, 
oh my God, that's me. She's talking yeah. about me there. Yeah. Without the detail and trying to be nice and skating around stuff doesn't serve anybody. When we come out and no. we talk about it in the reality of what it was, that's when people can sit and go, okay, I get that now. Mm. I yeah. have a right to speak up now. Because there is that confusion when you're a teenager being abused. How much of it do you own? You're already mentally screwed by then. It makes you more think that, oh my God, I am as, as responsible as him. I'm as sick as him. Yeah. If it wasn't for me, this wouldn't happen. Until you realize that's it's nothing to do with you. That's one thing I want to say as well. Is I sat in front of my counselor for half an hour and she was like, just get it out. And I said to her, I said, I was having orgasms when I was three, four and five, as far back as I can remember. And I said, does that mean that I liked it? No. And she was like, no, she goes, that's just your body's natural way of reacting. When she said that to me, honest to God, it was like, it's hard to explain. It's because it took that away from me as well that I didn't want it. Yeah. And like I was saying to her, like I was faking orgasms when I was eight, nine and ten to make them stop. Because yeah. I knew then once I'd done that clench, because it was so powerful in my small little body. Yeah, because he got what he wanted and you can understand how deeply personal that is and how that would stop people from ever talking about it it's yeah. so private it's so personal and it just feels like now it's been ruined because now it's attached to guilt and shame and something wrong how you would go the rest of your life well certainly your sexual your sexual life is in the crapper there's no way of avoiding it if you don't ever open up about this stuff. I mean, that's an amazing statement. And that's going to help so many people know it's okay. It's perfectly normal. It's not your fault. It's not that you liked it, wanted it, got anything out of it. It's just your natural physical reaction to a stimulus. Yeah. I remember thinking I never had an orgasm that there's something yeah. wrong with me. Yeah. And when I looked into it, like, I remember the time I bought a vibrator and yeah. nearly broke my hand, back went dead, and, all that, and nothing was happening. Yeah. And I discovered. Here's your twin. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I discovered that by. Uh, I did have an orgasm very young, and I was so ashamed of it. That's when I left my body, and I never returned. Even now, I have to struggle to get back there. But it was yeah. out of taking ownership of something that wasn't mine and the lack of understanding that your body does react that's nothing to do with you liking it wanting it or anything else but we would have never we would have never discussed it and even in counseling like it took me a long time to realize and it was only listening to other women in the group explaining sexual experiences that made me realize jesus like you know there's something wrong here made me then actually yeah. investigate it it's so sad. It's just so yeah. sad. Well, look, yeah. the good thing is that it's sad enough as it might be. I think it's great that we can sit here and have a conversation. Isn't it? An open conversation. Absolutely. There's no shame yeah. or blame, and this is quite normal. And it is normal. It is. And, yeah. you know, you would be in the same position as us, Sophie, that you were abused so young. We were trying to look at how we got where we are today, say. And we were trying yeah. to dissect all the steps we took. And we didn't know because we didn't keep record. But we did kind of think if you were raped tomorrow, you would, 
it would be dreadful. I'm not trying to diss that, but it was an awful experience. But you know, listen, I'm Sophie now, though. I know I need to get back to myself. But in our situation, like yours, there is no self to get back to because it's happened so young. No. You hadn't even formed. So it's about not only, it's not rediscovering who you are, it's actually discovering you and making yeah. you. And that's what makes it hard. But at the same time, it gives you a clear play and you have something clear to start with and you have this huge potential. I mean, you sound fantastic yeah. to me considering it's only two years after your face. And that's why that emptiness was so important to happen. Remember you said that after you shared, you just felt so empty. That had to happen. Yeah. Because you had yeah. to really go back to basics, go back to scratch and start building Sophia and who you wanted her to yeah. be and who you're happy to be. But can you tell yeah. us now, Sophia, in any way you can possibly describe it, what you believe the benefits are of coming forward and speaking out? Oh my God. I know that's so, a, I know that's a lot. It's like it's like you're almost giving birth to yourself, if that makes sense. It's you're giving yourself a chance at the life that you want and you deserve. And you're taking your control back. You don't get it back straight away. And sometimes I don't know, will you ever get it back completely? But the main thing for me was to be able to look at myself and say, you done nothing wrong. That was the one main thing for me. As I spoke about the orgasms, it was that. It's like that I done absolutely nothing wrong. And as, as I say, to empty your stomach from all that is, it's powerful. It's, there's not a word it's in the world that can describe it because as you say, you've carried it for so long. Yeah. It's just the burden being lifted off you. It's, it's amazing. It is. It's, my relationship with my daughter changed as well. Yeah. It's because I, I wasn't as protective or protective might be the word. I wouldn't have been as frightened maybe would it be yeah frightened or like if there was anyone around her kept watching do you know that sort of yeah. way I and think you do stifle your kids especially your daughters and it's yeah. all under the guise of protecting but it's just fear that you couldn't handle mm. and at the same time like we should know I always felt like we as victims grew up with this we should know and yeah we wouldn't, it doesn't come automatic that, you know, if your daughter was abused, you'd know about it. It doesn't no. work like that. No. The first thing that came into my head when I found out my father abused someone else was like, oh, Sarah, oh, shit, did he do it to Sarah? Yeah. I have Sarah. She, oh, she's amazing. Like, she's just so strong. She's just like, there's no one in this world that would like taking the agent out of her, you know. She buys and sells me half the time. But I said it to her and I said, I have to ask her. And she's like, would you go away if you came near me? I'd kick him in the face. <laughs> you know? yeah. And when she said that, that's when I knew. She didn't yeah. even have to think about it. Yeah. yeah. But she got because that strength knew, from you. I see that now. The day I came back from court, she was standing at the front door and she was like, Mom, I'm so, so proud of you. When I heard that, I was the best thing I could ever do in my life. Yeah, absolutely did. How has your, your relationships been since your abuse came out? Your friendships, your partners? I've been in a couple of bad relationships. I don't know, it'll, it'll change. Like, as I say, nothing 
everything can't be perfect overnight. Yeah. But I, I do find it extremely, extremely hard to trust people. I find it uncomfortable in a group of people. Like I'm like a meerkat, even at work, I'm constantly like this, you know? Yeah. And I, hopefully that will go, and it might never. And if it doesn't, I don't care. Mr. Perfect isn't ready yet. He's been made <laughs> for you. <laughs> I used to think that I'd never be happy on my own. I'm at the stage of my life where I'm actually, I'm so happy that I can be on my own. Yeah. Do you know, I don't have to depend on someone else to make me happy yeah, or make me feel brilliant. safe. How are you coping now in this with this COVID nineteen? I'm actually, I'm actually really surprised at myself. I am. Um, I was quite nervous because Sarah's gone up to stay with her cousin in Letter Kenny. She's been up there the last five or six weeks. But I'm working full time. I'm working like night shift, so I'm kept going. And it actually, in a way, it feels good because everyone I love and care about, I know, is safe. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about them. Yeah. And I'm actually enjoying this time getting to know me. I'm not against the clock. I'm not, I don't have to go here. I don't have to go there. I can come home, chill out, do my exercise. I can, I can just kind of be me without having to worry about anyone else. Yeah, for a mother, that's a precious gift. Absolutely. And for anyone that is a victim, please just don't blame yourself please and don't be afraid to speak and don't uh, don't give up on the first call, phone call or the first meeting just keep at it and it will be so worth it in the end it will right and just be proud of yourself for surviving it i guarantee you don't even know how many people you will save by having that conversation tonight but i feel i feel myself the honesty is just incredible and it serves everybody yourself included and i just think um you have done a great service to your daughter and you don't yeah. know what the knock-on impact of that is now when she has young children you're going to be blown away looking at you know <laughs> how she's going to mother as a result of having you as a mother and yeah. your honesty is beyond belief yeah and i Thank also you. feel if you don't go through that shit you could have spent your life just going through like with blinkers on not knowing what's happening in the world around you like you're awake now you're absolutely yeah. awake that's a good thing because you couldn't help other people if you weren't there's no shutting me up now <laughs> what? that's great nothing wrong with that thank you for listening hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavna Sisters podcast. 
You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh sisters at gmail.com.